Right, everybody, welcome back to the Bad Blood Podcast. We have got an outstanding, outstanding guest today. Um, a man who has been through it all, suffered the most horrendous mental torture you could possibly think of, um, was wrongly accused of a crime that didn't even exist. Um, the man's Nick Dunn. He's one of the Shanai Six. Um, he, along with five of us, were wrongly imprisoned back in 2013 and his story is remarkable um, I'm just going to go through a few sponsors here um, like to give a shout out to the cbdselection.co.uk um, if you want to take have a look at their website they've got absolutely loads of products that's great for everything uh, vapes, smoking vape uh, oils um, You've got all sorts, gummy bears, you've got literally everything, balms, creams, all sorts. Take a look over at the cbdselection.co.uk, have a look at the products. We've got a code here for you for 10% discount. It's BBP666, BBP666, and that's for 10% discount. Um Matty, if you would like to give your sponsor a plug. Uh, aye, I'd love to give a quick spot, uh, shout out to our sponsors over at New Hem CBD. Uh, they're a CBD-based uh, business. They specialise in stuff like the CBD oils, CBD vape oils, CBD, CBD balms, that kind of stuff. Uh, aye, you can find them at www.newhemcbd.co.uk. And if you want to actually buy products, we've got a discount code for you, and that is all capitals, Lee, L-double-E, and that's for 15% off. Uh, massive benefits, dear, massive health benefits, really helps with arthritis, uh, chronic pains, chronic nerve pains, it helps reduce inflammations, anxiety and stress, acne and psoriasis, uh, and if you've actually stopped smoking, uh, these products actually help with the reducing the withdrawal symptoms from nicotine, so that's absolutely bang on. And uh, once again, they're at www.newhemcbd.co.uk. And I'd like to give a shout out to Peep Magazine. They've been fantastic me over the years. Uh, Cliff's been great. He's shot some great footage over the years. Um, from the local scene, also professional shows up and down the country. Um, take a have a look at his Flickr. It's at, over at www.flickr.com forward slash people. And that's Peep Limited. Uh, he's also over on Issue on the digital magazine website. That's issue.com forward slash peepmagazine.co.uk. Um, Specialising in photography, marketing, journalism, and uh, a little bit of combat sports now and then. Uh, take a look at the YouTube channel as well. They've got some great content over there. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it, people, for the sponsors. Um, Nick, welcome. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me on your podcast. Uh, it's, honestly, your story is remarkable, Nick. Um, it's delving into it. It's there's obviously a deep-rooted hate politically between India and uh, Great Britain, and you've mentioned in a previous like chat with us that it uses what political pawns. That's in context. Where did you start? How did it all begin for Nick Doon? Well, I left the United Kingdom September 2000. 
How long were you in the service for? I, I did six years in the uh, first battalion of the parachute regiment, but uh, spent uh, the bulk of it in special forces support group, which we were assisting UK special forces on operations around the world. And what, um, so what was that? What was did the training consist of? Is it obviously we see the SES? Are you tough enough? The way you see stuff like that. <laughs> That's what I was expecting, that response. It's, um, it's... No, well, I, I did, you, to basically get to where I was, um, I had to go through basic parachute regiment training at Catrick. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And I was quite fortunate to go to the 1st Battalion. We have three battalions and uh, a fourth battalion, which is... Uh, Territorial Army. Right. Um, so I was quite fortunate to go straight to one para. Um, but I, what I know now is you go from character to two and three para, and then you've got to do so many years, and then you've got to do a, a course to go and join one para because the role isn't your conventional green soldier. And what we do, we, right. we do different rotations, different jobs. And obviously, yeah, assisting UK special forces, so you've got to be really on your skills and drills and be a, a, a professional soldier. So it's, it, it was tough, very mm-hmm. uh, demanding. You've got to be very robust. And I'll never regret anything. I wanted to join the, the army as a young lad growing up. Mm-hmm. When you see your old war films, and I think it was when I watched Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, and I, I saw him blasting everyone to bits. I thought, yeah. you know what? That's what I want. And I was so far from the truth on how it really is. <laughs> um, for starters, I have to actually change a magazine. He just had unlimited ammunition in his magazine, which I thought, that's fantastic. Um, but I'm not the tallest of guys, and I was quite a skinny rake back then, so it was really, really demanding, and I came through it because I wanted it. How old were you then? something in life, I, I went through basic training at the age of 18, 
I've had a few little injuries, mm-hmm. but it, it's just basically getting your body used to the, the physical robustness that you need to be. Uh, not just a, a, a soldier and infantry, but a parachute regiment soldier. Um, and you've got to take it to that next level from your normal uh, infantry. That's mm-hmm. why the parachute regiment is regarded the, the best regiment out there, and they are the elite, hence why they work with special forces. Um, so I wanted that, and I was quite fortunate to be in that uh, role and working with special forces. I went on operations in Northern Ireland, right. Afghanistan, wow. and my final tour was Iraq before leaving in 2010 to pursue uh, a different career, and that was going to be in the private sector. Right. Right. So was that obviously because um, my uh, my stepdad he was in the RAF. Um, he was uh, he was like I, I can't really remember. He was one one of their foot soldiers. It does. I can't remember. He was in the regiment RAF, RAF regiment. Rough red. Yes, <laughs> that's the one. Um, I, I, I remember growing up with some absolute like just men from who I've still yet to meet who match up to them do you think yeah. being around type of them people from like the early age of 18 was has played a big like factor in obviously we're going to get to that part in the podcast but like being in solidarity and being in that situation over abroad uh, yes definitely um, I was always with that mindset that I wanted to better myself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to become a part of the brotherhood. I wanted to test my my body and test me, see how I get on because it's not just something that you can just wake up and do. You have to put the effort in. And um, me doing that from the age of 18, and I did it till the age of 24, and I'm now 34, so uh, it's uh, it's very it's very demanding. Um, and like I say, it was the my earlier years, and I wanted it so much, and I achieved it. Oh, how de- how rigorous and demanding, both physically and mentally, was the training, like the special the specialist training. Uh, it's very demanding. You, you've, your skills and drills have got to be on par. You've got to be very quick and effective in doing them because in the, in, in a war-type situation, time can cost lives. Yeah. Complacency can cost lives. And if you think of it, you're in a, a, a section of, say, potentially maybe eight guys one guy gets injured or killed there's four guys to, you know yeah. that's four, four guys taken out of the team mm-hmm. to get one injury and the, 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 when you do your, your medical training you, 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 you've got to do it yourself if you're able to obviously yeah. they're always you'll always use your own medical uh, supplies um, self treat yourself if you've got any injuries and if you can carry on carry on um, and then you take the fight obviously to the enemy but people 
people don't realise that it's it's what you see in action films. Mm-hmm. It's totally different. You, you may get the effects and this that and the other, but being in them situations to actually real life, it's uh, totally different. I remember being in the Afghan uh, desert and we're having like a we're all around defence and we're having a break. Yeah. People have food arrest. And we got mortared. Wow. Mind these mortars were nowhere near because when anyone who is in mortars, I wasn't obviously a mortarman, but you always kinda you, you, you do your aim and so you're not always gonna hit the target straight away and yeah. hearing the whistle of a mortar and then hearing it kinda go off in the distance makes you, your heart pump, you do get a bit agitated, you do get a bit nervy, mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm not going to lie, a little bit scared, Right. because you go through all this training, and then you know one day you may have to do it for real, do you and know nothing prepare you for doing it real than doing the training, the amount of training we did prior uh, prior to going on operations, you have to tick every box to make sure you have completed your skills and drills and you are operational effective. You you mentioned all of them types of um, emotions. What out of all of them, when you were mortared, was the most up, the most... What can I say? That had the most impact on you? What What was the first? What was the first initial emotion to strike you? Um, fear. Mm-hmm. Because obviously you've got to listen for the whistle. Yeah. And kind of gauge where it's going to land. And then excitement. Because I, I, any any anyone who's joins the military, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a few ex-military guys who turn around and say. Oh, I didn't join the army to go to a war. What utter bullshit. <laughs> you join the army to go to a war. That is what your job is, to fight wars. Yeah, that's right. To yeah. Protect, but also to protect. You know, it, the army is not a nine-to-five job. You don't... It might have days like a nine-to-five job where you'll get up and put your uniform on in the morning and then five o'clock you'll be stood down. But... If they want you to work 24-7, 365 days a year, I'm sorry, you will do it because you signed on that dotted line to protect and serve Queen and Country. And that's what separates being in the the armed forces from a normal 9-to-5 job. Um, And basically, like being in them situations, Mm -hmm. you're very excited. Yeah, you, you, you want to, you want to, you, if you do all these training and exercises and you don't do nothing, then what's the point in doing it? Yeah, I, I um, see your point, I see your point, because you're putting so, obviously within that training, you are, you're solely focused on doing your job correctly, like you say, putting all your actions as a soldier, like you say, in place. Uh, what it it akin of a boxer? What's the point of a boxer training to not go into battle? Um, but obviously on a lower level, 
It's a harsh reality, Nick. It, it, it is, yes. It's a harsh reality. It, every, it, our foundations today, what we have, our freedoms and everything, is all based on a conflict. Um, basically. Exactly. So, uh, it's it's a profound, it's it's in our history, it's uh, it's in our DNA, 1,000%. Yes. Um, what was your first deployment like? I went to Northern Ireland as a a very raw 19 year old mm -hmm. I'd uh, the time I joined battalion I'd miss pre-deployment training so I had to do like a little catch up training to operate on the ground in Northern Ireland itself yeah. I hadn't done my parachute uh, jumps so I was we call them penguins because right. they can't fly <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. I was very very nervy. I was, I was, to be frank, shitting myself on yeah. what I've let myself into because training in Catrick to battalion life is totally different. And because I was the new bloke in our platoon, I had to get up earlier than everyone else to clean the ablutions, uh, stuff like yeah, you did in battalion because you, you do stuff like that uh, in training. And then you still got to kind of do it. Uh -huh. Yes, it is a little bit lax in battalion, but it's to keep you going and basically making you f uh, appreciate things more. So when you do not have to do that anymore, mm -hmm. you can sit back and go, you know what? I've gained respect. Yeah. Um, respect is earned in life. You don't just get given it. Nice. And yes, there was guys in, in battalion that, didn't like me and there was guys that quite frankly I didn't like them that is just on parcel with every job you do in life yeah. you can't get on with everyone however if we went to war yes I may think you know what I'd rather a bus hit him than a round but I would still defend him because he's an he's an airborne brother yeah regardless if I like him or not I'm there to do a job and vice versa I would like to think that anyways but <laughs> Stuff like that on an operation goes out the window. You're there to do a job, regardless of people liking each other or not. You're, you're a soldier, and you're trained to do the job. Yeah. So, on the first bit of trouble you ever encountered, what, where would, where did that happen? Um, for us, for troubles, well, in Northern Ireland, we had a few stones thrown at us mm. by the. The, the young kids and um, but that's nothing that yeah. you know it, it was quite a quiet it was very quiet tour for us um, even though the parish regiment is not very well liked in Northern Ireland in certain places anyways um, right, and, and uh, obviously Afghanistan I was involved um, in a vehicle uh, mine explosion. Um, wow. I was top gunner of the soft-skinned armoured Land Rover, which we call a Wimmick. Right. Um, it, it was a pressure plate mine. We were very fortunate. It just went up the engine block and uh, deemed the vehicle inactive. 
right. to the right of that vehicle there was when the uh, metal detector guys came round there was an anti-tank mine if we had pulled up a little bit to the right all three of us in that vehicle would have been blown to some of the marines that Ooh, is wow. the reality of war that's how close and it was probably maybe two meters away Crikey. so this social distance and two meters i know it's gone today down to one but <laughs> if you think of two a two meter and that's possibly the, the range from being alive yes a little bit of a scare yeah. to being dead two meters that's quite nerve-wracking and when you know when explosions goes off and you see in the movies and it kind of goes into slow motion and a lot of people go that doesn't happen in life uh, i will beg to differ it does it does happen. It, 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 when when an explosion happens it happens that fast you do not have time to say your hell marys yeah it, it just literally goes off you haven't got time it's not like in the films where you'll you'll see an ex you'll see the bomb and you'll go whoa i've got time to jump out the way no 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 it doesn't happen in real life it literally goes bang explain that to you that to me it's i don't know how i would react nick uh, you've actually been blown up before haven't you <laughs> Yes, that, that, that's what I'm saying. I was, I was in the, the, I was top gunner of the Land Rover, and we went over a mine. And things happen so fast. You, so when the dust settles, your heart's racing. You're checking yourself to make sure you, there's no shrapnel or any injuries to yourself. You obviously up your, your manhood. That's first instance I did. I say, I was like, as long as that's there, I'm still a man, you know, as, Priorities. as, daft, as daft as that sounds, that's exactly what I've done. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm not and laughing, in a, I'm just laughing because I, 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 really, I've been the same. I, I don't, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just call it, I'm sorry, call it you. <laughs> wow. um, and once the dust settled and then the guys were realising there's a, because quite a few, quite a few people had gone over mines on that job. Um, it, we were in a place full of mines, and it, it was. I think I can count on probably three, four vehicles going down that on that day with mine explosions. So, luckily, no one was seriously injured. Yes, someone did get injured in the uh, attack on the Taliban itself. But that wasn't involving, obviously, a mine explosion. Um, but when you see in the films and time goes slow in the, the proper slow motion, that is real. Mm. I am not... I, I was trying to get out of the Land Rover and all I heard was, in a very slow motion, don't move till we make sure the vehicle and surrounding areas is clear and you, you, I've got the proper shaky leg, and I'm wow. thinking, I just want to get up. Yeah, man, I need, I need a, I need something. Um, and yeah, I, I, I can't have a stiff drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just needed time to compose myself. And uh, oh, like, like I said before, they went around and made sure everything was tickety boo. And that's when they said, "Oh, if you uh, parked up a little bit further to the right, you would have been destroyed." Simple as that. Because there was a massive man. And then, then you've got the 
the gurus from the engineers coming and I and the, they said it was a, a 105 shell that Whoa. was designed to basically just take someone's leg off and like I said to you before mm. one person gets injured that's four guys to assist him out yeah. of the action yeah. as well so mines are a horrible thing and you've only got the British to I think we I think the British were the first to create a mine to be honest and you've got to yeah. you know you just <laughs> with all that being when when the dust settles when you've checked everything, when you're going through all your procedures after how you go through when something like that happens, because clearly we don't and have never experienced anything like that. What is the initial response? Your you're there to do a job that you can't let complacency. You can have a laugh and a joke, mm-hmm. but you've done the job. Yeah. Because... The job's not over. Um, stuff happens. You deal with it. You crack on. You do the job. You go home. Tea and biscuits. I'm fascinated by the reaction. The reaction time of the soldiers and the in how little time you dust yourself down. It's it's almost like it's it becomes an it's, instant. It's done in an instant. You don't realise at the time. You just gotta keep your head in the game and. Once you're back to your fob, your camp, wherever you are at station that, and then it hits you. Yeah, yeah. that's um, time for reflection then. I didn't tell me, I kind of told my family, but I didn't tell them the extent of it till I came home because I didn't want to worry them. Oh. Um, because they were already they were already worried anyways. Because when obviously British forces in the height of like say 2006 onwards in Afghanistan, it was nearly an everyday occurrence a British soldier has been injured or a British soldier has been killed. So I'm out in Afghanistan and imagine how my family would feel. Yes, they were full in support and would never stop my dream yeah but as a parent for them to not worry it was never going to happen um of course of course they were worried but i've lived to tell the tale and all is well so leading up to that day how not leading up that day how did you get this job with advan ford the army in 2010 I thought it was time for a, a change uh, a guy that was in my platoon he's obviously left and he's a he, uh, says have you ever heard of anti-piracy I went what anti-piracy you know, on pirates like Captain Jack Sparrow uh-huh. he went no man you idiot <laughs> stopping Somali pirates on ships I went I thought that, that was stuff that means do and were like this, oh man, you're a paratrooper, we can do anything. I said, oh wait, if you can't beat them, join them, I suppose. So I went and done my uh, course to enable me to work on the ships. I also did uh, my close protection course, so it gives us a, a different 
uh, option if I couldn't get straight onto the ships. I could hopefully go to Iraq um, or any other places doing uh, CP. But obviously, my life was destined to do maritime security, it seems. And I, worked, I was trying to get myself on every company's books. So I was doing jobs for different companies, getting my experience up and just every job's different. Yes, it can be mundane, but um, there was a, a big thing that happened in the beginning of uh, 2012 involving um, Indian fishermen getting killed right. and India were on edge. Plus, India had already been kicked off the, the NATO Navy uh, right. piracy combatant team because they were just going around and just murdering people. Right. When half the time they weren't even Somali pirates. So, NATO wasn't really happy with India, so they kind of fobbed them off. And India were always whinging on about the the uh, the the high risk area they don't they, they say they kept on saying we can patrol our waters well india may have a lot of navy vessels but they can't patrol their own waters the country's too big um so the, so india was on a massive edge so when we're on this uh, supply vessel yeah for that and we had a and we're stationed around the the bottom of the high risk area heading near Sri Lanka and south coast of wow. India we had to get fuel and provisions and we basically done communications like we company vessel agent on the ground in India and it was the south coast of India but the reason why we didn't do the, the east coast is there was be, there's obviously been uh, discrepancies prior in the past, but there was a, a cyclone. So in the maritime law, if there's a natural disaster or something, so on the high seas, you can seek refuge in a a neighbouring country, and right. the neighbouring country at the time was India. However, they deemed it we trespassed in their waters. <laughs> which is quite absurd, but yeah. oh. that's how they portrayed things. And it just became a, the beginning of a four-year nightmare. Right, we'll get into that. Uh, Nick, I just want to say straight off the bat, I'm absolutely over the moon to be sat here speaking to you. Uh, no problem. As, as soon as I heard about the story, I bought the book, and, and, and I was hooked straight away on the story. It absolutely blew us away, mate. And just to actually see yeah. how, how you've actually come out and the, to see that you're still the person that you are is absolutely amazing. Uh, well, a lot of my family and friends, the first thing they said to us when I got out of prison was, yes, you need a haircut. But you still got your sense of humour, said, that's something they would never take away from me. Ah, that, they yeah. always stick with us. Some, sometimes in life you have to laugh at the face of adversity. Yeah, totally agree with you, Nick. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Nick, I'm, I'm just going to take an, like, a quote from your book to start my question. How did a, no lad, from, how did a lad from Ashton end up in a prison in Chennai? Well, 
Just, you name it. Oh, it's it's absolutely disgusting. Like I can't even get my head around it, mate. It's disgusting. Um, do you want to shed some light on it? Do you want to tell me like what happened? What happened on that day that the uh, the MVC Mingard, Ohio was taken over? Right. Um, we. It was the evening of the eleventh of October, two thousand and thirteen. We were taking fuel and provisions on board from one vessel to the next. Um, because obviously, if of well, a lot of people say, well, why didn't you just go to port and yeah. do it that way? Well, what people do not realise is certain vessels need accreditation to enter port, and our vessel didn't have the accreditation. All right, all right. And because it didn't have the accreditation, if it did go to the port, it would be stuck on the the port side, which charges the a lot, uh, lot of money. Um, and that's how they make, how these ports make their money. But, you know, so every time you see these container vessels, because they're on such a high demand and need to be done quick, they, they just put them on the expensive right. uh, ports. Because they know they, they're going to get a lot of money from that vessel while it's uh, taken on board uh new stock or removing the containers etc yeah, yeah. so we i the company went we'll get a vessel from land to come out and meet with at a designated area and that but that's got nothing to do with me because at the end of the day yeah. in that current situation i was just merely a passenger yeah that's what i was uh, i wasn't operating the comp the ship itself wasn't operating we were just floating around getting a suntan <laughs> and fishing for, uh, well, squid, fish, whatever, we can get the shift. Yeah, anything to get your hands on. Yeah, and just basically just getting paid for sat on a, a vessel till the next job comes along. Um, what was the standard then, issue, kid, with that um, Well, standard issue, kid, you obviously get a, a helmet, body armour, a weapon, mm -hmm. ammunition, um, what it's not a lot, but when you're on a sturdy platform and they're off their face on a cat, bobbing yeah. around in a little speedboat, wow. and you're in a, in a high-rise vessel, on a, which is quite sturdy, you're not, doesn't matter how much ammunition you've got, you, they're not going to win, no, simple no, as that. Definitely so, and obviously, you, you have to, have a certain amount because after that you're deemed a bit overactive if you've got like 15 magazines on you or something you're like what, what, what do you expect uh, what do you do or something <laughs> um, plus plus the weapons are single shot yeah if they can't you know go on fully automatic because a, a weapon that fires fully automatic is a weapon of war where we're using a weapon for personal security protection so it is basically bang 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 single so burst. single single shot and that's one of the stupid things that the indians said about the g3 weapons they were said they were fully automatic which is totally absolutely bonkers it's just because they had an ear on the uh, trigger 
which basically you, you go from safety to single shot to fully automatic, but it, it had parts removed, so it was just acted as a dummy switch, basically. Right. But to put two and two together and come up with ten. Um, so on the morning of the 12th, the tactical deployment officer uh, kind of woke up and said, we're being boarded in the middle of the night by the Coast Guard and we're being instructed to go to the port of Tuta Karin. There's no reason why. They didn't speak, they didn't communicate, they just said, port now, basically. So we're kind of wow. left in the dark. Oh, straight to the point, isn't it? Very straight. So when you... When you got... What was the time... Did Advent Ford have people flown over straight away? Or how long did it take for representatives uh, to land? Um, we never saw anyone. Wow. Apparently there was a guy of Polish descent working in the European office of some sort. He... He came to India, but it kind of, the way the Indian police were going on, they would have arrested a, a cat if it was on the vessel. That's, they, were take, they were taking no prisoner. So uh, according to the the hearsay we heard is he got his, his collar was getting a bit hot, so he just he decided to jump back on a plane and piss off. Wow. Because... Which, wasn't good for us because we had no one to represent. Well, we had no translator, and our our uh, company representative mm -hmm. on on land was just laughing and collaborating with the police. Wow. <laughs> and you think you're supposed to be helping us? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. The Economic Times article in uh, on the 18th of October in 2013. Uh, William H. Watson, um, at, he'd done an article and, well, he was taking questions and the, the, the reason I asked that was because one of the key points I took away from that article was is that he said was Advent Ford people were landing in India within a day or two to help with investigations. Um, we were stuck in Portside for six days before going to pr uh, the police station and then wow. ultimately prison. We never saw no one. We even heard that the British Embassy got uh, fobbed off from seeing us in the port. Wow. Whether that's true or not, we do not know. But what we do know is someone has said something, blown it way out of proportion, mm -hmm. and you've got people from as far as Mumbai, different Police organisations, naval organisations, maritime organisations, thinking something bigger than Ben Hur is in the port of Tutankhamun. Wow. The media was like rats; they were everywhere. It was absolutely pandemonium. It was disgusting. We were told to keep out of the way. We ultimately had to do with a security watch because the, this is how con the concept of Indians have in their own country for health and safety, it's zero, non-existent. If we just let every Tom, Dick and Harry board that vessel, they would have capsized it. Because mm. they have no concept of anything. I can, I can, I can with that because my uh, mother and father-in-law, they went to Goa and they said it was um, not the best of places. 
I'm just going to say that the hygiene was yeah. pretty poor. Oh, no, no, it's, it is. And anyone who turns around and goes, oh, India's a beautiful, lovely country. Well, if you go to the top hotels, yes, of course they are. Yeah. yeah. But if you open your eyes and see India for what it really is, it's not a nice, clean country. And I'm not just saying that for what I went through. You've got to remember, I spent a year and a half not in prison. Mm. I lived basically out in, the, in in India for a year and a half. I saw a lot of stuff with my own eyes to make my own judgment. And I tell you what, it's not a country I would think, you know what, I fancy going there. <laughs> yeah. I always wanted to go and see the Taj Mahal. I was even thrown off by Indians themselves going, what you see on the TV and see on the postcards is not what you'll see when you get there. It's disgusting. It's dirty. They don't clean it. Oh. And across the river, you see <laughs> there's bodies. Oh. The, you know, and you've just got to watch an idiot abroad to see that. Uh, that's so, that's there's, a lot, there's a lot that they don't show the uh, outside world, but... That's that's another thing that caught my eye with this story, Nick, is the lack of attention to it. I, I'm, yeah. I'm a lost for words to it. To me, I, I'm, I'm not a consp- conspiratist or nothing like that, but this reeks of something rotten. It's- oh, yeah. Um, it, was, it should never have happened. Obviously, in... Um when you go to say parts of Africa, maybe the Middle East and India, etc., mm-hmm. uh, money talks, and you may off, you may have to pay a little bribe, and then you'll be on your way. But that's how it works in these countries. Mm-hmm. Pure corruption. corruption. Pure, pure, pure corruption. And you, you just batter it. You just turn a blind eye because it's either. I'll pay what they want, or I'll go to prison. Right. Money isn't everything. However, if you've got the money, you can be on your way. And unfortunately, that never happened for us. There was rumours that they were trying to do a deal, or I think that was just hearsay, to be honest. Um, uh-huh. 30, 35 men, 35 weapons in a vessel, and they're on about trying to get for half a million dollars. Wow. Like that. Why did, if that was true, why didn't the company that I work for exploit that? Yeah, yeah. Why didn't he go to the media and say India are bribing me? Yeah. Um, these, men these men haven't done a crime, but he didn't. No. He, he went behind the rock that he's still hiding behind now. Wow. Shows what type of man he is, then, really. It's, it couldn't, it, it, he's not, in my eyes, he's, he's not, not a man. man. No. He's a coward. Oh, definitely. And he's disgusting. When, out of the, when, because you were questioned by Indian Coast Guard, Indian Navy, Customs Research Analyst Wing, and the branch of, the, of India's intelligence service. Out of all them, who was most intense that you've, that when you were interviewed? Um, well, I, I, to be honest, I wasn't personally interviewed, the only, because there was so many of the kind of, picked and chose one or two people yeah. um, and the and half the questions that they were asking was just pointless 
Stupid, stupid questions. Not even, not even to do with the involvement. It was like, so you ex-military, yeah. So you've seen bodies, you've seen dead people, and and there's people who've been to operations who've had seen yeah, this and have Blatantly, like, blatantly obvious what a soldier would have come across. And, and, and they're asking these questions, and they're like, and the blokes are getting up and walking away and saying, "I'm not answering these questions." Aye. To you, who do you think you are? Yeah. Um, but we did handle it in a professional manner. Just the captain of the vessel didn't. He locked himself in his uh, cabin for about four days, and every time we spoke, the police screamed and shout. If he'd handled it. Better? Yeah. Do we do you know? Do we think it may have went a different way? I don't think it would have made a blind bit of difference. They knew what they were doing. They knew we were going to prison. They knew we were going to be made an example of. They had it planned. This was a massive setup, and they knew what was happening. They warned. After what happened with the incidents with the Indian fishermen getting uh, killed by the Italian Marines, people will be made an example of. We were made an example of two idiots from Italy bloody spoiling and robbing me of four years. Oh, Not just the Indians robbed me of four years, but two people who should have known better. Yeah, some people that should have been professional should have done their job correct. Well, when, when you're working for your country yeah. in the Italian Navy, you've got rules and regulations and you do... What people don't realise is when you're on the high seas, you've got a lot of stuff to do before you even put it put around in someone. Honestly... It's like they've just pull, pulled their weapons out and just shot them. Yeah, but like, yeah. without even identifying a threat. Exactly. And they were just fishermen. Oh, oh, and then it created an absolute international incident. And we took the fall. We were the fallout guys. The what? The, 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 uh, the Indians that locked us up in that, uh, they were absolutely horrific with you as well, like when you were in jail. Uh, after reading some of the stuff from that book, Nick, like, oh my god, it, like, it must have been crippling your head, like, absolute well, mind torturing. Uh, I, I just want to bring you to a story that actually is in the book. You, you must have spent uh, a little bit of time in the prison by this time, and uh, you were woken up all the lads, and you were told that you were leaving, like, you've got all your bags and that packed. But oh, then, yeah. But then, yeah, like, was, it was a vicious mind prank, like, yeah, um, all that. It was, it was before we got bail, um, during the first six months, um, one of the jailers, he, he, he was off his, he was off his nut, man, he used to wow. just pedal around on his bike, and he, he came to our compound, and he was just like, that's it, you're go and pack your stuff, because when you, like, Something had happened, yeah. but we were just keeping my foot, uh, feet firmly on the ground, and it just we were just a hook, line, and sinker. We were just fell for it. But what what, what would you expect we'd have done? Exactly. And we'd already been given bail, so we had to wait. But oh. he was just 
making stuff and, and, and the thing is though everyone packed their stuff and we all came marching down and the super I think it was either the assistant superintendent or the superintendent himself went what's going on why he's oh wait he says uh, we've got bail but we're, we're getting released and he went I never said nothing at all Nick. and we're like Nick, do you know when this is a silly question, but I've got to ask it. Do you know when he, he said you're free, pack your stuff, come with me? Yes. How I've got to ask your mentality. I've got, I've got it. I just need to know that the change from when he said he's off free to walk into that place to meeting the the man in charge and saying no. We, uh, you could picture a, a beehive and all the worker bees fuzzing around, packing all the stuff, happy. Everyone was happy, buzzing. And then next minute, it just feels like your world's just been taken away from you. When they go, no, you're not going anywhere. And then I think it was either a day or two later, Mm -hmm. we got a message saying, that's it, you're you're leaving. And we went, no, we're not falling for it. And the actual superintendent of the prison had to come to our compound and say, Will you get out of my prison? Wow. Yeah. That's that's how mentally it affected us because we, we just didn't know what to believe and and in that situation it like you, you, it's from from that from that instant there on unless I see it in black and white or it I let me see the embassy people there saying yeah it's time to leave oh. i was never going to believe a word any indian prison official said i bet that is totally understandable from every single <coughs> angle like i'm saying that it's just cruel there was like you were in there for something yeah a crime that wasn't even committed utterly innocent you were having a hard time as, as it was but the, the, it's just yeah. pure, like unhumane to treat people like that. that what was it's, like, it's, it's, it's like get, get, it's like getting kicked the keys to a Lamborghini, and then as you're walking to the Lamborghini, your Lamborghini just blows up, ah, and you're thinking, oh, "Horrible!" What? <laughs> That's a horrible feeling. Ah, I, 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 I only say that because I want a Lamborghini. Just <laughs> 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 <Does it> blow. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, you go, you go from a, a happy, jubilant mood. Uh, having your legs just taken out Aye. and uh, it makes you feel sick then prison conditions what were they like well I have shared pictures of when we were convicted of the second in the second prison um, my sister sent us a spy pen in so I have released I, did, I released pictures of the prison um, once my book had came out because I felt like it had to be done and it was just they're, they're not the greatest uh, conditions you've got mm-hmm. the locals just pissing and shitting everywhere and oh. it stinks of urine it's, it's vile it's disgusting the, the heat as well the rubbish it stinks um, sometimes you might get the drains blocked 
Uh, How's it yeah, run? Your toilet is a hole in the floor. Oh, we, had to go and cook, we had to go and cook our own food because we didn't want to eat rice and chilli oily liquid. Because it wasn't dull. <laughs> it oh. was just horrible, you know, vile, disgusting food. Oh. And imagine our UK prisons getting served that food. Oh, there would be pandemonium. Oh. They bloody have steak and chips and for Christmas dinner and all out in our prisons. No wonder people would do, uh, commit so many crimes in the UK because the prison's probably better better for them. Uh, but, in an, but in an Indian prison, it's a prison. It's not there to it's a hovel. be like a, an educational holiday. It's a prison. You are, you've done wrong, you get punished. What was, what's the gods, what's their attitudes towards not only, clearly, the Indian prisoners themselves, but what was their attitudes like towards you and your fellow men? Uh, well, there's a the massive thing of the uh, language barrier with certain individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're idle, they're very lazy, it's like they've got no proactiveness in their bodies. Um, they don't. They just didn't care. You were just a number, regardless of what background you came from. Yeah, we weren't a, a common criminal. We weren't a gangster. We weren't a drug dealer. We were professional ex-military guys. Yeah. And the, we were all treated the same. Um, yes, the embassy did help in getting things changed for us, but. Uh, it was just like you're in prison now lads deal with it (laughs) and you're thinking it's you either sink or swim the the conditions you mentioned the summer heat being unbearable what's an Indian winter like an Indian winter um, probably hotter than our summer Wow, Jesus. We, so this is cold. I was, I was freezing at 24 degrees. Wow. So 24, obviously, 24 degrees now is, is it's lovely. It Too is hot quite warm. <laughs> but, but when your average temperature is 30 degrees and, the, and once, one year it got to nearly 50 degrees. Jesus. And... When you're in a prison and they're switching, yes, okay, the fans were as much as tits on a fish. However, they take the edge off it slightly. When they used to switch the power off, and then, because our compound required a motor to bring water. Right, right. You had to start rationing the water, and predominantly the water was mainly for the toilet. And obviously, to have a shower, so... You go nearly twelve hours in the, wow. in them conditions, and it was tedious. The flies were annoying you. Oh. Um, that's why if I see a, bl- a blue bottle in in uh, UK, I just leave it alone. An mm-hmm. Indian fly, it, uh-huh. it absolutely, it's like the biggest bell end ever. <laughs> um, the, the conditions were horrendous. Um, Yes, you can turn around and say, well, it's a third world prison. It's what it's supposed to be like. A prison's not a holiday camp. And I think if 
our UK prisons, obviously not to the extent of an Indian prison, but take away some of the luxuries, I guarantee you half the criminals in a UK prison would not commit a crime. Or better still, they all think they're big and tough, but I guarantee you they'll be crying for mummy if they were in my shoes. Crying for mommy in my shoes. <laughs> Aye. Uh, well, it was just. Nick, uh, being in that Indian prison, it, like, I can imagine how shit it would have been. So, h- how did you actually pass the time? Was your mind occupied? Uh, I read I read that you built a gym and you were messing around with that. Yes, um, there was flagstones around the, the prison compound, so it was just poked them out of the ground and then we found bits of metal and kind of sharpened them up and took turns using it as a chisel um, to get a hole and then we'd try and find like a a metal pipe or a plastic pipe or a a branch and then we'd use some uh, bed sheets Do you know during what would be a, a normal daily routine? Right, my daily routine, and it's good that you've asked this question because I actually have to do a little bit of thinking. And I know my sister she asked us this in a letter because the media wanted to know, and people want to know what's his day to day routine as he got himself. Because when you're in the military, the first thing you do is assess the situation and then you adapt improvise and overcome yeah so i then went right okay we we get up in the morning we'd uh, go to the kitchen we'd fill our flasks up because we'd we had like a prison account where uh, a british uh, charity called prisoners abroad and i thanked them so much for their amazing help and also family members could put money in your prison account so you could buy say stuff from the shop wow. uh, like porridge and just to give you some extra food to eat or biscuits and, and obviously you need to buy some you know your toilet yeah. like you're so you know I've never used so Essentials. many uh, I've not met I've not used so many bars of soap in four years <laughs> in my life previously <laughs> it's unbelievable um so you had you were able to buy stuff and so I would get we'll get up in the morning we'll go to the the kitchen which was always an epic it was wobbling on fighting on to get on the stoves so when you next go to your kettle and you flip that switch remember I take that for I never take that for granted now I appreciate it because I had to stand over a stove and with a pan and boil water to then wow. not burn yourself and pour into a flask 
and that was our hot water um, to go to share with each other in the cell um, to make cups of coffee, cups of tea. So you'd have like, because the issue with a spoon, a a dog bowl and a a metal cup. So we'd have like a brew in the morning. I'd, I'd have boiled eggs. I'd stopped eating the chapati, so I'd have a couple of boiled eggs and some porridge. Um, not the greatest of breakfast, but at the end of the day, I am, for, I am after all, in a prison. Um, we'll get a bit of milk and have that. And uh, it'll be like, if you've got biscuits, eat them. And, and then we'd have like one meal a day. Wow. So we'd go over to the kitchen for lunch time, get our vegetables, which sometimes they were wrong and disgusting and we might have to wait a little bit longer, which delayed things even longer. So the longer you're going, the hungry you're getting, then you've got to prepare it all. So you're fighting over for knives and cooking space. It was just an absolute rigmarole at times. Um, and then you've got to then go, in some cases, uh, at quite a bit of a distance from the kitchen to the compound you were you're in. Um, the first prison, it was like a mile. The second prison, it was across the road, so it was pretty great. But still, took time. Even even though it was across the road, it'd still be a couple of hours. Yeah. That's how it was. And we'd always have, like, say, around tea time. Um, were, were basically one meal a day. Yes, you can eat clot and biscuits and whatnot during the day, and sometimes we'll get would buy fruit if we could, if it was available, um, just to give you extra stuff to eat. But so I, I, I was smoking biddies, which if you don't know what a biddy is, um, it's spelled B I. DDI, I believe, and it's basically just a, a prison cigarette, and it's a, a, a leaf that's just rolled up on itself, and we smoke them, and they're, they're, they're vile, they're absolutely disgusting. I brought a, I brought a pack back home for, just so I could show people, and, and that, they're, they're actually vile, disgusting. Your teeth goes black in seconds, oh. man. Um, so, so doing doing like stuff like writing to family, dot to dot, reading books, um, doing a bit of fitness. That was like every day. Yeah. Passing the time, you, you've got to keep your your mental side on par because. If you he- if you let your head go, that's it. You s- you'll sink into the dark abyss. Mm-hmm. When when you what was the f- you were saying about the facilities being terrible? How did you just improvise for training? Oh yes, definitely, definitely. You've got to improvise. That's the whole way of getting round it. In what you ways did you? Just using knowledge, mate. That's it. What struck me first initially when I first seen a picture of you is wow, that guy is humongous. <laughs> he's 
an absolute beast, <laughs> absolute <laughs> giant of a man. Like, it, 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 how did you? I know you were saying it's not a nice breakfast, but you clearly were getting the correct, like, you were eating the correct well, things to maintain was, that weight. I was quite um, big before getting locked up, and I lost 10 kilograms. When I came out of prison after six months, because we literally were struggling to eat there, and it was, yeah. it was awful. We got Dean, master of D&V, where... I was literally crying for my mum. Oh, uh, I, I literally was, we all went down. Literally every single man. Yeah, you think the coronavirus spreads fast. This shit fucking spread like wildfire. Wow. We were mad. We were men down. And I remember lying in my cell and during the day we'd use the outside toilets because obviously, yeah, you know, common courtesy yeah, yeah. during the day. And just once you're locked up in your cell, use the the cell toilet and I remember getting up to go to the toilet and I literally I started being sick and then I just shit myself and I just started crying for my mum I said I'm gonna die in here I'm sick I'm gonna die and everyone was just ill you know it was it was absolutely you were you take away and it, it wasn't good and obviously I spent a year and a half out of prison so I was eating chicken biryani nearly every day which is just chicken and rice bodybuilders so, yeah. and I was able to train so the time I got back into the second prison yes I'd still lost 10 kilograms over the two years oh. however it was done gradually and I had I'd met some fantastic people in the gym and they obviously found out about it because it was all over the news once we got convicted. Uh-huh. Um, they, they were getting in touch with me, uh, me girlfriend, uh, where well, I kind of got me, me ex-girlfriend at the time to go to these gyms and they were saying, we can send them uh, protein powder in and we'll do like a PayPal transfer. So I was getting protein sent into the prison oh, wow. um, just to give us extra stuff stuff to eat and mm-hmm. drink and keep keep us keep going and but it wasn't enough we weren't starving in the second prison mm-hmm. that's for sure we, we weren't we, yeah you made do we, you made do the second prison to the first prison was totally different it was still horrible still crap yeah but totally different and but it's nowhere near on the level of a UK prison. A UK prison, you get three squared meals a day. We were only still technically eating one meal a day. But if you didn't eat, if you didn't want your boiled eggs in the morning, and you didn't want porridge in the morning, well, there's no for you to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, when would uh, pr- prepare our uh, food to go to the kitchen to cook it? Sometimes there'll be leftovers, so I used to create like a little mini salad. So I'll keep me boiled eggs mm-hmm. and then just slice carrots and cabbage and stuff like that. And um, like I said, a lot of people were sending parcels for condiments and all that. And I tell you what, I've never seen so much alcohol gel in my entire life. If I knew, <laughs> if I knew what 
how the hell Kel was going to be like, I, would, I wouldn't have used it, I would have sold it. <laughs> we're experiencing this we we really do think we've had it hard and to delve into the story more than what it is to maybe go forward speaking of the British government I personally personal opinion you've been majorly let down how do you feel for fighting your country? Do you how 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 does that make you feel? Um, a lot of people say, why should ex-service personnel get special treatment to Tom, Dick, and Harry? Well, for starters, you don't get special treatment once you leave that service. No one looks after you. No, that's You've right. got to look after yourself. You've got to go through the different channels. No one does it for you anymore. Wow. No one does it. So, for me, for people to turn on and say, well, you're bleeding on, saying you should have had special treatment, that's totally disgusting, and you turn around and saying that. I joined the military because I wanted to join the military. Mm -hmm. I gave up my Christmases and New Year's, my time off, so you didn't have to. I sacrificed so you didn't have to. I do what I was doing so you can live the life that you have, the freedom that you have. So when I lost all that, when I had my freedom stripped of me, of course I wanted my government to help me. Of course I did. I said, I, I put my life on the line for Queen and Country. I want something back. Yeah, and when it right. never came, I thought... How disgusting. You could have done more. The British government could have done more. They should have gotten us home in July 2014 when the case was quashed. Yeah. But they turned around and we, when we had a meeting in the embassy and they turned around and said, because the police had 90 days to appeal to Supreme Court. And they turned around and said, we don't believe they'll appeal. And we looked at them from the people from New Delhi and we looked at them and went, are you taking the mick here? You've not been dealing with these absolute morons. And what happened? On D88, they put an appeal in and got their wishes. Two days before we could have walked out of that country. How let up and disgusted of the British government must I have felt? I felt let down. I did that. I felt, I felt in a way, slightly betrayed. I was going to say that. I, I, I didn't want to be too harsh in my statement of saying that word because I know some ex-forcemen are, are, are very, very, very passionate and exactly why you joined the forces. I, my, my uncle has just left after 22 years service. He, he was in the RLC. I can relate to you in saying he got no help when he come out. Zero. None. Um, it's as simple as that. It's basically handing your your stuff out the gates and off your pop. Um, how? When your sister? How? I know you can't speak for her, but overall, what is? How frustrated? I, I I'm trying to just to try and put myself in that position of how frustrated. 
with the lack of like engagement what because this should have been it, it should have been at the forefront of everybody's attention ah it should have been out there for people to see it, it should have been but what you got to remember at the time we were on the verge of doing a referendum to leave the eu yes we were we were involving in trade deals with india Right. If you can, if you can remember Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, came over to to the UK, and David Cameron was yes. doing his best to lick his arse clean and try and speak Hindu and uh, Hindi and all that crap. And I, I just felt, and we we were hearing about and saying it, and we we're just thinking how embarrassed. And you've got Indian prisoners telling us, saying, why is your government not doing anything? And we're like, we have no idea. They keep saying they can't vote. And I'm thinking, but you can do a lot more than what you're doing. Yeah, I've got right. absolutely no bad words to say about the embassy girls. They did everything that I asked them to do. And they did everything that they could do. They did more than what they could do. Because when the shit hit the fan, that's when the UK kind of swallowed the pride and went, ah, there's something here. Mm. However, when we were convicted for five years, we heard that even the Indians in New Delhi were even shocked. I'm thinking, well, if you were clearly that shocked, why did you wait two years? Yeah. Before out of the country. It's that's another overwhelming feeling. The the time frame of things, how the length of time it took for stuff. To, yes, it. Well, the Indian courts they always <coughs> turn around and say they mirror UK courts. Well, they're different because they have a summer recess. Because back in the day of when the UK used to rule um, India. Obviously, the, the judges were British, and during the, the hottest part of the, the, the year, they have a, had a, have a recess, and they still do that to this day, even though they're used to the heat. So, the court, going through the courts, there was recess, there was court closures, there was court, the, the, the lawyers strike. I, I said when I got back to the UK, there were a UK lawyer. Have you ever heard of a, a lawyer strike in the UK? They went, it would never happen. We'd lose our jobs. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that's happened, so it was causing delays. You've got the prosecution not turning up. Like, yeah. these are the people that are supposed to be sending you to prison and don't even want to turn up themselves. Does that not tell you that they've got nothing on us? Exactly. And, 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 and the judge will just go, two weeks. We'll delay it two weeks, and then on one occasion, the judge gave away a court date, but didn't realise he was off on that day, <laughs> and even turn up. So, anyone who whinges on about UK courts, oh, it's not happening quick enough, it's, 
Do go and do a piece in the in India, and we'll see how long it takes, shall we? They've they've purely got no uh, they've got no respect, or they've probably got no feeling towards anyone other than themselves. Because uh, they've got no concept they, of time. That's what they've not they, got. They didn't actually speak a word of English when you were in the courts, did they? No, it was all done in Tamil, and uh, so you couldn't understand a word what was being said. No, we hadn't a clue. So every time there was kind of a little bit of a break, where a lawyer used to come over and translate and tell me what had been done. Um, and it was actually just crackers. It was it was so hot. It was tiring. There were winds on that people were taking drinks of water. I said, "Hang on a minute. I'm t- do you want me to pass out here?" Yeah. It was ab- absolutely disgusting, and there was just no respect. The trip were like scum. The trip. Like would re- like we were criminals. Yeah. Like everything they lied about their media at the beginning, they actually believed we were gonna do something of a mass destruction. Mm. And I was just like, I've been on ships where I'm protecting your own kind. Yeah, and, and like it's I know I know we're a little bit pushed. <coughs> Excuse me, a little bit pushed for time here. Is there any possible of getting a second podcast with you, Nick, to continue this? Because oh yeah, definitely, course. We, of course. Yes. We've only covered a certain a, a certain amount, and we've still got your book, Surviving Hell. What is on Amazon? Yeah. What you can buy? Um, that's on it on all formats, isn't it? That's on Kindle as well, I believe. Yeah, it's on, it's on Kindle. It's uh, not. Uh, on paperback yet that's out in september i believe it's on harper you can go and get it on amazon you can go to actually waterstones because their shops are now uh, reopened now um and you can buy from various other online uh, outlets as well um but amazon's the most popular one that people have been buying it from um it, it, it's just like I never imagined that I would be doing a book and it wasn't until I was in prison when people were writing to me and saying, Nick, have you ever been thinking about writing your memoirs down? I went, wait, not really. They're all in my head, to be honest. <laughs> um, and then when I come back in, the, I come back home and people, are, you know, when they recognised us and started having five crack with us, and, which I was totally in awe about because these people supported me and mm-hmm. for me to just ignore them that would have been totally disgusting so I gave them the time and said me thank yous for their amazing support and they always kind of finished off before leaving Nick you should do a book <laughs> Nick this, this could be a film one day and I just laughed it off and, I, mm. and it kept on happening and happening and, and I just I said to my sister one day I said, Lisa, too many people are asking for me to do a book. And to be honest, not many people know exactly what happened. The media couldn't cover mm-hmm. because things was changing and happening that quick. And so, and the time difference and the time I, my sister's letter got made when I got, it was all delayed and, and quite a lot of it, but there was no happening. Uh-huh. Um, but, I thought, you know what, we'll, we'll 
will, will, will inquire. So we just went on the good old Google and started inquiring about how to, and what uh, routes to go down to hopefully get into the situation. And it was it was tedious. It was a bit nerve-wracking, waiting on a response. majority of the responses were, oh, I'm too inundated with other copies of books that I need to publish and blah, blah. Have you got this? Have you got that? And I'm thinking, uh... <laughs> So, to actually write down and go through everything again, which was quite difficult and mm-hmm. upsetting on certain uh, chapters, to then see my first draft was like, this is real. And then once it got the go-ahead to be published, yes, okay, couldn't have came at a, uh, I wouldn't say a better time, but obviously that's sort law, hence why yeah. I've been trying to do a lot of self-promotion because I've lost the ability to do, to do TV and to do me events and signings because of the coronavirus, which yeah. hopefully um, later in the year we can hopefully, fingers crossed, once me paperback comes out, we can try and do these events like book signs at Waterstones, etc., yeah. doing live books, Q&As, etc., uh, mental health talks, um, all all that rigmarole, all good stuff. Hopefully that can can uh, re happen before the year is out. Um, but then when I received my first copies of my book, mm-hmm. and I opened the parcel and I saw my face, I thought, bloody hell, I'm looking into a mirror here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because people can, people can turn around and say, well, I can write a book, I can write a book. I said, yeah, you can write a book. Can you get it officially published? Like, uh, yeah, that's it. What's the hardest part? Getting it published. We are officially published. I'm not self-published. I'm officially published. My book, you can buy in a shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I felt so proud because it's not something that I would have normally have done, but to have done it, I did feel proud and and to see people buy it who supported me and to see people who didn't know about it but then have bought it and shared it on social media and looking at the reviews people have been leaving on Amazon, it just makes me feel proud. I've achieved something in life and I'm hoping to hopefully get more positives from that. I've, I've now taken a very bad negative from my life and I'm turning it into a positive oh definite a hundred percent that's I think that's what to take out from the story is your unbreakable spirit your absolute mentality and mind strength second to none um I don't I don't know how tough you are I don't care who you think you are, if you were in my prison, like I said earlier, you'd cry for mommy. Uh, no I, I'm, I'll openly admit that, because I would be crying my eyes out. You're 5,000 miles away from home. Mm-hmm. You're, it's not like a UK prison where you can practically see your family very often. Letters took sometimes days and weeks to get here. Um, for one month, I never got a letter 
because wow. of the delete Poor. and seeing my guys receive letters from home it, it broke my heart because I felt alone yeah I like I people had forgotten about you but I felt forgotten about but it wasn't it's because mm-hmm. my bloody letters were delayed somehow and I got about a million uh, bloody to reply to you and a bunch and you know like when you're receiving parcels and letters from people around the world as far as Canada, France, wow. America, Australia, these people have heard my story and they're taking, and they don't have to, and they've taken it upon themselves to write to me, send me parcels, some of them. That makes me feel like humanity does have a good side after all. And I witnessed it through my time in India. I believe, you know, a lot of people in my town keep calling it Afghanistan and <laughs> it's this and it's that. And I tell you what, it's got a, an amazing community spirit because I've witnessed two, maybe three forms of community spirit just getting, just being back home. And the deed, what they did for me. Yeah. All they did for me. And it was down to my sister. She rallied up the troops and went marching to the government that. to fight for justice. <laughs> and people can turn around and say, well, any family member can do that. No, they can't. Any family does that. No, they don't. No, they can't. No, they don't. Because a lot of family members don't always get on with each other and some people would rather see some of their family members in prison <laughs> is a, you know but my sister it's your blood one, it's your blood once I was on that vessel and there was rumours in the Indian media of us doing an airborne an airborne a seaborne Mumbai style attack on the nuclear power plant <laughs> and sell weapons for fishermen what do you think what do you think my family's going to feel like so when they ask me, have I been doing no good? And I turn around and go, no. Absolutely, totally disgusting what they're lying about. Mm-hmm. That was my family's pledge to fight for justice. Yeah. And, and my sister never gave in. Anyone who knows my sister, she was gained the title of, uh, okay, basically small and mighty because she's not the tallest of lasses but she has a heart like a lion the woman she never would give up unstoppable unstoppable she was she was as relentless as you Nick as relentless as you and must run in the family <laughs> well I could there was days where I wanted to give in many days there was many days where I had the problems with what happened to me man while I was in prison and that tested me to the limit and there was times where I did want to get up, give on, but she wouldn't let me. People's amazing support wouldn't let me. It was just, you have to go to that next level in mental resilience. The, I lost count on how many mental walls I overcame because it was four years of mental hell. It, one, it, it was the the not known half the time yeah where you didn't know where to stand half the time you didn't know if you were coming or going you didn't know 
half of what was going on on the outside. You were just put in a prison and nearly forgot about. Like, you're waiting a year for a decision and the judge is unwilling to do this decision and has to be forced by the grandest judge of all of India because of, the captain was nearly dying of cancer of the bone. So it took a man to nearly die for us to get our freedom. I was just and about to mention it, that. And you call that a democracy? You call that justice? No. Definitely not. Uh, it's appalling uh, behaviour. It is absolutely appalling. Disgusting. I can't, um, I'm the British government just sat back and just let it happen. Wow. That's not what you'd expect from your country. It's and, yes, okay. I, I saw two foreign ministers in the prison, which doesn't happen. And I knew the government was doing more. Just you can't see it. And if you can't see it, you do start and believe that nothing's happening. And I do know I, they, they were doing stuff. I, I know that. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't enough. It definitely wasn't enough. It seems like the bare minimum, to be honest. But when you're going through trade deals, when you're going through our own country's issues, i.e. the referendum for uh, leaving the EU, six British guys in a foreign prison is the last things on their mind, regardless of over 70-odd years combined military service wow. and people said and will probably continue to say why should you have getting special treatment just because you're millionaire I said I wasn't asking for special treatment I was asking for justice yes uh, that's, yeah. that's all I wanted <laughs> to be on a fair a fair level playing field and yeah. that is I did Honestly, Nick, I, I feel bad to have to stop this here because we'll only get so many up, like, I'll only get so many no, upload no, no, time. It's, it's totally fine. Like, a lot of people have said to me, so when's your second book coming out? Because I know there's so much more you can say. I said, well, hopefully there's something bigger than a, a, a second book coming out. Who knows? Film. <laughs> Film all day. Film. I, I, I'm telling, I, I know that industry moves slow. The in the film industry, uh, the, the, yeah. this is going to be a film. I, 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 I can feel it. Only time can tell. Yeah, you're not the only. You're not. You're not the only one that said that. And pe- people who have just read the book, the book's gripping. It is. I, I'm like I said. And I'm so far forward, and that I need. I need more time. I need more time to get into it. I do. There's, there's, there's a lot of people who've picked my book up and will not put that book down till they've finished it. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I need more time. I, it's it very, very... It's, I've read a lot of books and this one so far, it, it's pulling on so many emotions on so many levels. Well, it's kind of like two—it's two two different uh, stories for one 
overall story. You've got my part on what's happening in, through my eyes, and then you've got what's happening in the UK through my sister's eyes. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's what that's bringing, what's... that's what's keeping people entertained because it start, the book starts off when I get convicted and you think, whoa, how, hang on, how has this happened? Yeah. And, then you, and then you get to, then you get to basically, it becomes like a biography and, and uh-huh. it starts to, my life to get to where we need to be and, and then you're getting my sister's uh, words in there and and there is a lot of uh, mixed emotions. There's pride, there's family spirit, support from everyone else, battling and fighting for justice oh. and freedom. And, and people, when they say, tell me, Nick, I couldn't put that bloody book down. It just had me hooked. Oh, it had and me hooked. I, I feel so proud that people are telling me this because the guy who helped me write it, he doesn't do real life kind of books, he does fiction. And for him to help me and do this, and he had an an amazing patience for me. The amount of times where I would use some flowery words in reliving certain subjects, and there'll be many times where he says, look, do you want to carry this on another day? Because I was getting upset. I said, no we'll carry on because he's he's recording me as Uh well as typing it so as a writer he's putting the emotions that i'm talking into words and describing it in immense detail people are reading this book and going i had no idea and i could have put so much more in if they gave me so many more words to put that's I was only given, you, I was only given a certain amount of uh, words uh-huh. to use. So, like I say, for me doing these podcasts and sharing my story, I can hopefully share a bit more insight to things that might not be in the book, or, or just elaborate a little bit more. And it's, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the time, a lot of people do ask similar questions, but uh-huh. you, uh, uh, it's, it, it's good given like slightly different answers and just elaborating a little bit more on other things as well and oh definite i would i would absolutely look i mean I, i'm gonna speak to the guy who else uh, i contribute to the magazine and I've, I've sent him a message i'm just waiting on his reply um yeah. i know he's a busy guy um but oh, i'm gonna yeah. put that forward to him as well i've already done it in a message um broke it yeah. down everything um I would love to get you back on because I would love to I would love to go in deeper of from coming home to and how your approach on life on a more or from going through that I would love to pick your brains on how how you how long it took you adapt back in normal civilization um i would yeah, like that's to no problem. possibly lockdown, in. It's been, lockdown's quite it's been quite funny and I'm, I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence and thinking i'm better than anyone else during lockdown i'm definitely not however this lockdown yes it's been in my eyes unnecessary 
call it what you want. That's my opinion. I think it's been a, a test for a lot of people. Uh-huh. Um, a very big test for people with mental health conditions. And my heart goes out to all those who've struggled. Um, but, yes, okay, I was in a prison. I was in lockdown. A lot of people have been seeing their own home as a prison. It's not. It's a safe refuge. Yeah, home to be safe. You've got TV, unlimited stuff to watch. You can video call your families. You can pick up the phone and call your families. You can eat till the cows come home. You can audit. You can do so much in your own home and surrounding areas. You're not, the government didn't see you couldn't go out. You were still able to go out in the early days. I was in a prison. I couldn't just go, right, I'm just uh, popping across the road, the shop, mate. Um, uh, I'll see you in about five minutes. Or I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pop round to my mum's. I'll stand at a gate. I couldn't do that. I was on the other side of the world. I couldn't pick up a phone and ring my family. Yeah. Even the embassy tried to get with her the chance to speak to our families on Christmas Day and they were going to take, pay the charge but the, you know what preposterous thing that turned on they may will not be able to understand them in case they're given of vital information I was like and well information about what <laughs> are you we want to speak to our family on Christmas Day obviously that never happened but Whoa. it was you know I couldn't just pick up the phone I couldn't wrap my arms around my family I couldn't do half of the stuff that people's been doing now yes it's annoying and my heart goes out to anyone and i've done extreme lockdown and if you want to know what the extreme i do mention the hospital incident in my book we went into a three month compound lockdown where we couldn't leave the compound at all unless it was with a guard and half the time the guards were nowhere to be seen wow so, wow. picture being in your home and having everything to do and, th- and still thinking that's a prison or being in a prison, prison. <laughs> yeah, it's too big, there's being, a big difference, like. No, the, the only difference, it wasn't solitary. It was just locked. You couldn't leave your compound, yeah. which is still a massive mental thing to overcome. Hmm. And it was about three months. Wow. And it, it was very tedious there was a lot of people getting very frustrated um, I, obviously I was a flavour of the, the three months I wasn't very well liked because I caused it but at the end of the day um, I was accountable for my actions and I put my hand up and I said look guys I'm sorry but we're in this together Yeah. and I, I may have mucked up but, and I let my emotions get the better of me but hey what do you expect we're in prison for a crime we did not commit and you want me to be in control of me be emotions no, I'm, exactly. only, I'm only human at the end of the day you're a human with a ex with a extraordinary mental like solitude and you're just I, I, honestly Nick I, 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 I can't say anything enough highly enough just just how you've managed with it dealt with it and even how you even look your outlook of life is now 
Um, I think that says a lot about you as a human being. Um, I think that shows what type of personality you, you are, you have, um, and the unbreakable spirit that you've got. Um, I would just like to take the time to thank you for coming on this podcast. Um, it has been, we've had some brilliant people on, but you are, you are one of the most fascinating characters I've ever in my life ever come across and I can't believe I've been in the same town as you. <laughs> just, I'm, just a, I'm just a guy from Ashton who was dealt with a, a bad, bad uh, short straw in life and I had to deal with it and I had to use me military, military training to uh, get us through and, I, and at the end of the day that took us to a certain level, I had to go beyond that level and go beyond that level and then go beyond that of next level <laughs> yeah. and I couldn't have done it without me support of my family and I definitely couldn't have done it without the uh, amazing support that I had from the, the people from the UK more so those from Ashton the community spirit for me was fantastic and those around the world who supported me my heart will always have a special place for them people who supported me and I thank every single person like I say from the, from the bottom of my heart and we did it together because I couldn't have done it alone I would I would have broken been a broken man if I tried to do it alone some things in life you can't do things on your own you need help strong strong words from a from a remarkable man Nick Dunn Honestly, I really want to thank you for your time. Um, I, I, I would love to get you on definitely again within the very near future to continue the story. Um, I just no want problem. To, thank you very much. Um, brilliant having you on. I, um, it's been amazing speaking to you, Nick, getting to know more about your story. No problem. And thanks very no much, problem. Nick. Appreciate that. No problem. Thank you very much, lads. Thanks very much. Bye, Nick. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Ta-da, ta-da. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was the remarkable man, Nick Dunn. What a man. Surviving Hell, his book, out on Amazon. Waterstones in Newcastle. What can we say, Marty? It's absolute bong as it pulls out the heartstrings. It it, it plays with our head. It, it, it's a story that really is made for a film. It's, it, it sounds unbelievable, but what you've got to realise is that it's a true story. It is. It, it's a, like these. It's straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, I can't right. believe we've been fucking more about lockdown and. And uh, that's it. That's what Nick, that's what Nick texts you. Read the book and then tell <laughs> us how the lockdown's treating you. <laughs> what a man! What an elite level human! Just like to give a shout out to the sponsors. As always, cbdselection.co.uk. Go out, check out their website. They've got gummy bears, vapes, oils, you name it. Anything CBD, the cbdselection.co.uk has it. Exactly the same as that, but that's New Hemp CBD, and that's at www.newhempcbd.co.uk. And for a 15% discount off, that's capital letters Lee, L double E. Thank you. He done his job, but I mind. I forgot <laughs> the discount code on the CBD selection. 
BBP666, BBP666, and that's for 10% discount. Right, guys, well, thanks for listening. Um, over and out until we've got Christian Roberts coming on the podcast in literally about an half an hour, 40 minutes. It's time to sit and just take in what we've done today. Um, listen out for some more. See you later.